Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of Ancient Office Hours. In the final episode of 2022, I'm excited to bring you a very special conversation with Dr. Theodore Tarko, a professor emeritus of classics at the University of Missouri. Dr. Tarko served as Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences for a few years while I was at school, so unfortunately I wasn't able to take a class with him. I did, however, have the pleasure of working with him while he was in the Dean's office as a sort of second advisor. I would very much like to thank him for almost single-handedly dragging me across the finish line to graduation by accepting my less-than-stellar results in my math, science, and finance courses. I think it fitting that in conversing with one of my best college advisors, we chatted about how advising conversations differ when serving as a dean rather than regular faculty, about his philosophy behind the college sophomore slump, and about his thoughts on the greatest future struggles for classics in the humanities. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. And, now that Christmas and a few other holidays are only a couple days away, I want to wish everyone a very safe and happy holiday. The Ozymandias Project team and I can't wait to see you all in the new year. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Tarko. First question is pretty easy. I just, I'm very curious how you got into classics. I was fortunate to have a fabulous high school Latin teacher. She was so old that she personally witnessed the fall of Rome, but she was as fabulous as she was old. And largely because of her, I decided when I went off to college to continue studying language. Uh, it wasn't Latin or Greek, it was language. And in part, that's through the fact that I was raised bilingually. So I had a, a natural inclination for languages wedded in part by my upbringing and wedded in part by a fabulous teacher. So that when I got to undergraduate school, there was no question that I was gonna start just continuing Latin. And then the second year I studied at college level, German, which was the language that I was raised bilingually, and I started at a really high level in German, which allowed me to start yet another language, which meant that I studied Greek and Latin and German in my sophomore year and then henceforth. So it ultimately goes back to a really fabulous Latin teacher. And the thing that made her fabulous was she made memorizing forms something which you wanted to do. It wasn't the boringness of forms and grammar. It was the enjoyment of just recitation stuff you memorized and recited back and forth to other students. Wow. I think we all wish we had such an engaging teacher from such an early age. I mean, and did everyone in that class get just as excited and want to keep going? Lexi, that is a real good question. I am in contact with one person professionally who had the same teacher and others who I've met in other contexts, and all of us remember this teacher with just extraordinary clarity. Whether you went on in Latin or classics or not, she sticks out as one of these kind of high school teachers you're just honored to have had. Oh, by the way, her, that was, that's the good side of this teacher. The bad side was she was as right on politics as right could be. She was a member of what was called at the time the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society was a group of people who believed that there was a communist under every table. 
And she was very suspicious of anything the quote government close quote tried to do. And she was convinced that we were on the road to immediate ruin, thanks to the fact that there were communists in our midst. But despite her politics, her knowledge of teaching and of Latin just set me on a path that I'm very proud of. Okay, well, so despite her politics, it was it's good to hear that she at least had an appreciation for an ancient language and was able to excitedly right. pass that along to you guys. Right. Did you encounter any trouble with your parents at the time? Were they resistant to you going into? Oh Lord, no. Oh, I my, one of the blessings best things about my growing up is that my parents I had. Uh, my mother was a Hitler refugee. Um, my father was a transplant from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Madison. He had grown up in an Orthodox Jewish community. His high, kindergarten teacher was Golda Meir, who eventually became prime minister of Israel. Um, they were as accepting and tolerant as could be. He was a chemist. Uh, my mother was basically ran lots of stuff with language programs, international studies at the University of Wisconsin. They could care less about what I did as long as I liked doing it and was good at it. So they did. My dad didn't push me to go into science. My mother didn't push me to go into languages. They just said, "Be a good human being, make a difference, study what interests you, and do well in it." That's incredible. I love it when there's good stories about very supportive parents because I know these days it's getting harder and harder and having been a dean and having these conversations at Mizzou, right. you know, did you encounter a lot of skeptical parents? Lexi, when I was in the arts and science dean's office, one of the most interesting challenges that I really liked is talking to parents. Parents unwittingly and unwillingly and inevitably just put pressures on students. I think that's even become more intense since you graduated and you have well-meaning parents saying, look, you've got to major in this. A, because I did it. And because B, I'm paying for your education. And C, therefore, you must do it. Well, students are not their parents. They are themselves. And getting an adolescent to feel comfortable with who they are is really, really part of the responsibility I felt I had in the dean's office. And, you know, I'd have these conversations daily. And a lot of times, I have to be very careful. Not, I didn't want to draw on my own experience. Um, I was lucky to have been raised by the parents I was raised by, period. I know that that's not the same for many other students, but yet the sense of growing up and feeling comfortable with who you are is something I had that I hope to be able to share with other students or students I was privileged to work with. Well, something that really stood out to me that I have sort of wondered about is you know, how do the conversations change between when you are in the dean's office versus when you're like a normal advisor in a classics department, or is the conversation not that different? That's a good question, actually. The, the substance is fundamentally the same. The difference is that when I was in the dean's office, I had certain rights that I don't have as a, as a rank faculty member. I can, I can deal directly with medical doctors and with counselors and with MUPD and, and, and stuff like this. I can't do that as a faculty member. It's part of being a dean. So what I've tried to do is to use the rights I have in whatever position I have in the best possible way. That's all, that's all you can do. There are certain things that someone who's got the title of dean can do that I couldn't do then that I can't do now. Okay, so maybe it, it's not a case of one is clearly better than the other. They're just different, very different. It's like apples and oranges. I mean, on the one hand, the, 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 the opportunities you have in the dean's office is really what they are, but also the consequences. I mean, if I was dealing with a student in a certain type of situation and I did what I was able and allowed to do and it backfired, that reflected badly on me and I would feel badly about that. But that's because I did what the responsibilities I had allowed. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's different just being a faculty member who, you know, deals with this and, and, you know, in an important way, but maybe mistaken, but you don't have the consequences that flow down to it. Mm. When you were in the dean's office, did you find that with the increased responsibility, you had more power to sort of influence a student if they were kind of waffling on where to go or what to do? 
not not power. Power is the wrong word. I think that being in the dean's office gave you a sense of having authority, and therefore more likely to have influence, and therefore students and parents listened to me more than they would just to a rank in fact by a faculty member or advisor. Not power, it's authority. So it means you have to use it appropriately and and thoughtfully. And I and I hope I did. I mean I was you know, very pleased with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations. And, you know, maybe 1% in retrospect, I felt I could have handled it differently and all this kind of stuff, but part of dealing with people growing up. Well, I remember being very thankful when you were Dean when I was at Mizzou, because I know that for a minute there, I wasn't sure if I was actually going to be able to go through with my classics degree. It's, 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 it's part of growing up. I mean, I, I'm a great believer, Lexi, in the concept of sophomore slump. Have you heard that phrase? Not in the context of school. All right. I, did, I, I believe in sophomore slump more than almost anything else. With reference to going off to college, a lot of students will go off and have, oh, they're excited about being a freshman and they're going to go to college and be on their own and all the stuff about college is exciting, da 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 Then, you know, the major they want is going to be harder than they thought. It's going to require that they take something they know they're not good at. And then there's the slump. Then what am I going to major in? Oh, then simultaneously, a relationship with another person that was going pretty good when the student was a freshman begins to wane. And there's this loneliness. Also, by the time you're a sophomore, you're not just adjusting to dorm life, but you're not really at home in the new place. You get the point. And then it's, in many cases, a difficult time to come out of the slump. The real question, being in the dean's office, is some people experience the sophomore slump in the sophomore year. Others experience the sophomore slump in the junior year or the senior year, when, in fact, they were able to put off the really hard courses for a while, but eventually you got to take them. And now what happens? So sophomore slump is, it's a real, I believe in it strongly whether it's the sophomore year or junior year or senior year or a sophomore year in a profession, the second year or the third year in a job, you get the point. Mm -hmm. So dealing with people in different parts of the life cycle of success and its opposite is, is a challenge and it's an opportunity. That's so interesting. I, I, I confess that the only context previously that I had heard the term sophomore slump was baseball, a rookie's second year. <laughs> A rookie, well, the same, it is the same concept, but you're 100% correct. A rookie second, a good way of looking Yeah. So I want to just kind of rewind a little bit back and get to your research, though, which I am very excited for people to hear more about. So when you went off to university, how did you end up picking what topics you would like to specialize in and study? When I was an undergraduate, I studied languages, but I had some experience doing some theater stuff as in high school, and I continued doing theater stuff as an undergraduate. So I was in a number of plays and performances. And then as I went on on in classics, I found myself professionally interested in Greek drama. Uh, for example, I was in a performance of Aeschylus' Agamemnon at my undergraduate school. Um, I was in performances of other works by other authors. And then when I got to graduate school and started working on stuff for my dissertation, it was natural that I would do stuff with Greek drama. So that's the stuff I've done. I'm still working on, on that stuff. I still find it very fascinating. I'm working right now on a particular passage in Aeschylus' Agamemnon that involves a single word, a single word. And that's one of the things that we do in, in classics. We look at individual words and figure out why they are, where they are in the play that's come down 2,500 years. Wow. And, and can you tell us what this single word is? Single word is, it's a character in a Greek drama, and the name is Cassandra. Cassandra in myth is the woman who knows everything, but no one can believe a thing she knows. And in this particular play, Clytemnestra, who is the wife of Agamemnon, calls her off the chariot into the house. And at that point in the play, there's been no introduction of this woman to Clytemnestra. So there's no reason for her to know the name. So the thing I'm working on is how does Clytemnestra know the name of Cassandra? 
Ooh, I had not noticed or thought of that. Okay, no. So that's that's insane. So so far in your research, what have you found? How, what do you think? How does she know the name? Number one, prior to this point in the play, Clytemnestra has told people at Mycenae everything that is happening at Troy the night it fell. So she's describing where there are fires, where there are people being killed, where there are being sacrificed to the gods that are being distorted for various reasons. She's not there, yet how does she know what's happening there? So she has a way of knowing stuff that there's no reason for her to know. Likewise, when the fall of Troy happens, it's a series of torchlight beacon messages that are sent from this place to this place to this place to this place to this place. Finally, the beacon light reaches Mycenae. Well, Clytemnestra describes the passing of the torch from here to here to here to here to here as if she's herself in a relay race and she's seeing stuff in her mind's eye that she's not there at. So the same person who knows exactly what's happening at Troy, although she's not there, the same person who knows how the beacon light is coming, although she's not there with the beacon, knows the name of Cassandra. And that turns out to be important for some other stuff, but that gives you a sense of how you can relate it to the play as a whole. That's fascinating. Uh, truly, because... Well, that's what makes these old these old things neat. Yeah, there's... It makes these old things neat. Every time you reread or, re or just study something, I feel like there's always going to be something you missed. Right, right. I mean, and you're going to go on personally and professionally. And, and, you know, I think in some ways you're always going to think back on the stuff you studied as a classics major. Doesn't mean you're going to become a classicist. The odds are you won't. But the odds are that you're going to retain an interest in and fascination with. Like just this afternoon in my uh, Greek lit class, I showed them, um, you went to the special collections part of the library, and there were some copies of old editions of manuscripts and books. And so one of the things that we talked about is whether uh, there's going to be, like books can die, they just fall apart. Will there be the death of the digital way of communicating? And we came up with the conclusion that, yeah, probably there will be the end of the digital age and what's going to come after that. And that goes back to this whole notion of how material is preserved. Uh, oral literature became various types of written literature. Now it's digital. So you can do a lot of stuff that relates the stuff to its own times and to the times in which students are living. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I know we speculate about what comes next when everyone gets bored of their right. cell phones, but right. Right. who knows? So, oh my goodness. And and so I'm curious, what was it about Greek drama and tragedy and, and you know, not, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish I could answer that, Lexi. I wish I could. I think in large part it's because I myself was lucky enough to act in some plays. That's all I can say. I, I like plays. I like to go to plays. I've been in plays. And I think in part because I have this affinity for drama that I've done, I found out somebody's in the text themselves. And then there's, there's also something about the Greek language that comes about in the plays of Aeschylus, more so than Sophocles and Euripides, that just I'm fascinated by what he can do with language. In antiquity, a lot of people didn't understand a damn thing he said, and yet they loved him. The Oresteia is produced in 458 BC. 50 years later, 50 years later, 53 years later, in 405 BC, Aristophanes can parody the lines from the Oresteia, and he can only do that because people have memorized them. Even though they didn't have text they could buy at the bookstore, the power of the listened language resonates with people in antiquity in ways that just strike me as astounding. And I think Aeschylean Greek just lend itself to stuff. What the hell did he just say? I don't know, it's, I don't have to think about that a while. So it's drama and, and the Greekness of Aeschylean texts. I mean, I think it's it's fascinating to hear you you say that you love what you love about Greek dramas because I just had the pleasure of speaking with someone who studies Greek comedies, who said there's something about the comedies that just is so gripping. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, nowadays, if you listen to John Stewart or Stephen Colbert, you have to say, by gosh, this goes back to Aristophanes. It goes back to Aristophanes, period. And this gets neat to be able to say, you know, this kind of stuff was as vital to ancient Athenian life as comedy is 
in modern American or British life. And in our modern culture, since we are living in sort of this like Renaissance era of everyone suddenly likes old Greek and Roman things, have you seen like a particular adaptation of any of the old Greek dramas that you really think is done well? Oh, yeah, that's a good question, actually. The thing in, you might recall when you were a Mizzou student, the thing that we, my department, we were just fascinated by. We can't teach enough myth. We cannot teach enough myth. We just can't teach enough of it. And I'm struck, for example, in Greek literature, the number of students who will bring in cartoons or memes or editorials that reference uh, Greek myths. And I'm fascinated by the hold that this stuff still has on people. And nowadays, for example, I don't, I collect a lot of this stuff. Um, my fascinations of late have been Narcissus story, the uses of Narcissus and the uses of Sisyphus. I mean, every week there's something, every week. That's really great. Is there space for like a Greek meme class or like how to act, like employ memes in a proper context? Yeah, it would be fun to do. Right. It would be fun to do. Rather than having a class on Greek memes, I use memes in every class. You do? Okay. I have, my, I have a collection of... Who knew there were so many Sisyphus memes that could be beautifully employed? So many. And and you use all these in class. Oh, yeah. You know, hold on a second. Here's some Narcissus ones. A Narcissus prayer. That didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, <laughs> I didn't mean it. And if I did, Oh, my goodness. That's... <laughs> Here's a combination of Narcissus and Sisyphus. <laughs> with the selfie stick <laughs> these that's are great nice. yeah that's good oh my goodness yeah yes yes i agree <laughs> so that's you know i got literally i got literally hundreds of these things oh that's uh, <laughs> i love that you use them i i know it's usually oh my I use in a typical class i'll use three or four every day the nature of classics as a field is really interdisciplinary, but, you know, why is it that sure. universities don't do more, like, interdisciplinarily focused courses? Because I know we have Ancient World on film at Mizzou, but we don't have a ton that will cross over with other things. And why do you think that is? Lexi, the answer is ultimately the number of faculty you've got. Um, and there's some stuff that just has to be taught, like myth, basic Greek civilization, basic Roman civilization basic Roman literature, basic Greek literature. Once you cover the basic stuff, you don't have that much time for other stuff. So yeah, right now we've got Achilles um, Achilles in Vietnam. We've got classics in the Black experience. We've got other types of classes. We've got women. I bet you took um, women in the ancient world. There's only so much you can do with the number of faculty you've got. But if, look, if people like you take the stuff that we offer and you feel good about it, We've done the right thing. I loved all the classes I took, definitely. Yeah, right. That's what it's all about. I think most classics departments boast that they have a lot of really good teachers who like the material. Like, you know, it's, it's not everybody, not every undergraduate is going to find this old mm -hmm. stuff interesting. And so you have, you have a responsibility to try to make it interesting, mm -hmm. which is what we try to do. Well, I guess, and sort of a, along with that, I know there's always... I guess from people who love classics, I, I know that we always are kind of bemoaning and wishing that we had cool, more sort of topics courses or specialized courses at the at the upper levels. But as right. someone who's on the inside, who sees how these things go, is it more important to add cool, enticing class offerings with cool titles, or is the big the like the myth class the most important class you could offer? Right, the basic myth class, the basic. Greek civilization class, the basic Roman civilization class, or my archaeology colleagues, the basic, one of the most uh, important courses we now have, uh, one of our young colleagues, the archaeology of the ancient, the uh, um, ancient lives in archaeology. What do we know about daily life thanks to what archaeology has taught us? That's a critical topic. So we do what we professionally are trained to do, and we try to cover some good ground. It's not all the ground that's out there. That's, that's what we do. And we feel pretty good about it. You know, our alums are great kids, do wonderful things, range of things. Very few of them go on professionally. That's irrelevant. 
most liberal most liberal arts fields are ones that get you thinking about stuff or transferable skills. And that was one of the things when I was the dean's office, I kept trying to say time and time again. Yeah, you know, if you're majoring in like accounting, you might get a job right after graduation. Great. But in terms of thinking skills and problem solving skills, you may find yourself not ready to think about what your next step should be. The odds are with a liberal arts degree, you have the kind of mindset that's going to be much more useful in the long run. Actually. Yeah. And I mean, in your opinion, is it more important to just get sort of people in the door by you know having them take these big basic classes or you know for the health of the field do we is should the emphasis be on pushing people to get the major and then hopefully continue on boy that's a good question i think the primary obligation should be to get as many undergraduates exposed exposed to the ancient world as possible period a smaller subset will take two or three or four courses. Smaller, smaller, smaller will go on. I think that's irrelevant. The world doesn't need a gazillion classicists. It doesn't. But it needs people who are educated, who know that there is value in the past. Uh, we live, you know, nowadays in a throwaway generation where students and parents increasingly live in the present and for the present. But there's something about the past that is eternally important. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that we are committed to. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is a member of the present 21st century, but the ancient world had its own Donald Trumps and getting people to realize that the focus you have on the present is gonna be best realized if you are mindful of the past is part of our obligation. And what would you say to the people who kind of poo-poo and naysay and say, no, we shouldn't be comparing the ancient world and its problems to the modern world because they're so different? I would say, thank you for your opinion. I think the most important thing that you can do is to learn how to reflect, to think about your own times in the context of what's created the present times. And inevitably that's gonna lead you to think something about the past. It might not as be as much about the past as other people's do in their thinking. That's okay. But you personally have some sense that there is a trajectory of experience that's led to you being where you are right now, thinking about the stuff you're doing in the way you are doing it. I mean, I think that's true. I think... I think it's sad when I see some scholars out there getting very criticized for making a direct comparison between modern problems and ancient yeah. ones because they just get basically told no well that's like comparing apples to oranges you just can't do that and i think it's really discouraging to to have someone say that right 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 so does this give you a sense of life in the fast lane here in Columbia, <laughs> when did you graduate about uh, three 2018 years ago now? before covid but yeah, yeah. three or four years ago. You're lucky that you graduated before COVID hit. I do realize that now because I've had friends who told me that they weren't able to graduate and go through the pomp and ceremony. And, and it's not just Mizzou. It's true of every, you know, I hope these students aren't blaming mm. Mizzou for that. There's nothing. No, nothing of course not. Do. No, but it's interesting because I found it a, a really interesting experience, though, to talk to people who uh, were still on campus when all this happened. And, and, and I was very encouraged to see a lot of talk about studying the past and the ancient world for, well, what did they do when plagues hit the world then? And what, what did the response look like? Thank you for bringing that up. One of the texts that we've all been studying more and more the last couple of years is Thucydides' account of the plague. Lucretius's account of plague, the rise of a subfield of ancient medicine is more and more apparent every week, in part because of COVID. So this is all good stuff. We're all good reasons for people to be finding a way of, of studying this stuff. Lexi. And I think your podcast is going to help bring a certain level of understanding to a wider audience. I hope so. That's the goal. But I mean, yes, we did. I, I had the great pleasure of speaking to an expert in ancient medicine, and that got me thinking. And so I do want to ask yeah. you, what do you think are some of the underexplored topics that more people should probably get into? Because it's, I don't want to say neglected, but it's just not as popular as, uh, you know, 
poetry or drama or, or some of these things that are very, very popular to study in classics. Right, right. Um, I would I would sing a lot medicine, big time, technology. What created the impetus towards technology in medicine in parts of the ancient world, but not in other parts of the ancient world? What kept the Greeks from inventing calculus? Calculus is so important for so many things in the technology and mathematics and science fields. Why didn't the Greeks do it? All that, all that kind of stuff is stuff fraught with importance for our own times. Cults, isms, banning books. These are really key topics in our own time. And I would argue that you can learn a lot about our own times by thinking about them in the context of the ancient world. Why did they kill Socrates? Pretty neat guy. They killed him. These are all really, really great questions. I I would love to have someone yeah, take that right. up as a field of study right, and, right. and tell us and try to give us these answers. Because right. I think I when when you were in the dean's office or, you know, even in your capacity as as faculty, how often did you hear people say, oh, I don't want to do classics because it's all been done already because, you know, been there, done that. And it's one of the ancient disciplines where we know the most. Lexi, I've heard it time and time again with reference to classics with reference to studying history, with reference to studying anything that's alien from your present. It's not just classics. Nowadays, there's a real resistance to the study of the foreign language requirement. I'm never gonna use it. English is becoming the language around the world. Why do I have to study another language? We have to do something to impart on students that language is a way of thinking. And thinking is a way of understanding differences in people. And dealing with differences in people is one of the great political and moral imperatives of our time. Mm. And the fact that people are running away from studying foreign language, it's one of the worries I have about you know, higher education and high school education in the next 25 years. I definitely understand the worry for high school because the reason I picked the high school that I did was because they offered Latin. And then the year that I was due to start, they announced that they shut their Latin program down and I was forced to take French instead. Sure. We know that we hear that daily. But the learning language is is so critical to so many things. And it's not just, I'm I'm never going to go to Germany. So why do I need to know how to say where is the railroad station in German? That's, that's not, that's a superficial reason for learning a language. But I have to be very careful. I was I mentioned earlier, I was raised bilingually. Um, I had a natural ability with language. I find this stuff very comparatively easy. I know that that's different for, you know, in the Dean's office, one of the things I had to learn is that subject matter becomes of, diffic- of different abilities to different people. Some people find such and such easy. Some people find it hard. Some people find it automatic. Some people have to really work at it. Da, 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 da. I found language easy. Other people didn't. I mean, I don't think it's any secret. I remember during some of our meetings when I came to see you and I just, I, I remember sort of losing my mind over some of these courses that I would have to take to graduate that I did not find easy. Right. I remember right. my right. finance course that I had to take and we, we, we really had to work right. to, to get me through that. Oh, I remember, Lexi, I don't remember the particulars, but yeah, no, no, there's some people who are perfectly good students, but there's one particular subject that some aspect of their brain chemistry or their upbringing or combination has made getting through that very, very difficult. Yeah. I understand that. Both as an administrator and as a faculty mm-hmm. member. Well, and and I'm actually glad you brought up the languages because I was I'm curious, I'm I'm endlessly curious about the idea of when Princeton announced its decision to make the languages optional, saying those who are committed and right. know they want to take an ancient language and go on, they'll take them and they'll still be taught. But for those who didn't have access and who would never be able to until a collegiate level, where it might be a bit harder. You know, how do you feel about decisions like making the languages optional? Although I think the way Princeton went about doing it was very, very mistaken. We we basically do that at Mizzou also. You can major in classics and you have to meet the BA requirement for the degree in general, but that doesn't have to be Latin or Greek. You can do it with French or Italian. So we have a track for people who want to study classics without the language, but we also have one for students who really want to study language. And there are a good number of people who do. There's no, there's no question about it. Uh, and there are some students who will just do the minimum amount of language 
they'll use it to meet the BA requirement and then they'll do no more, but they don't need any more for the BA requirement or for classic. That doesn't bother me. I think that you, in a public institution, we have to be diverse in how we handle what requirements are, both for the degrees and for majors. So with all the hullabaloo at, at Princeton, I think what MU does and many other schools is the right way to go. And the thing about Princeton, they, may, they, they had to draw attention to themselves and get a lot of press out of this. A lot of schools have been doing this for a long time. Not, not all the schools, but a lot of schools. So what do you think it was yeah. about Princeton? Is it just because they're an Ivy League? They're, they're very visible? Like why? I, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that Princeton has a, a definition of a degree that is part of being a certain kind of school. And all power to them. All power to them. And therefore, the change at Princeton was a significant change. We are a public institution. I, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, the land-grant campus of the University of Wisconsin. I understand that there's a difference between various degrees at campuses, all of which reflect well on the purpose of the institution. I understand that. Princeton has a different mission, like you And, you know, is that, is it part of, like, just defending the fact that they're you know, they need that endowment money? Is it because it's just the prestige itself and the pressure is getting to them? You know, is it? I think it's the historical allegiance of alumni to the school um, and the brand. Uh, the Ivies are very brand conscious. They're very, very brand conscious. And if you do anything to upset the brand, you're going to upset a lot of people. And that's that's what happened, Princeton. I mean, when they announced this thing, you think the Western world is falling apart. Oh, my Lord. I mean, it, it, at MU, you know, there'll probably come a time when MU doesn't have a language requirement. I mean, it's, it's 10, 15, 25 years from now. But there will still be kids interested in weird things like Latin and Greek, period. And there'll still be people who want to study Spanish and Italian and French for hundreds of reasons. Great. I think where there's a real emphasis in languages in the future will be in things like Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, maybe Korean. And some of us are worried that there's a lot of literature that suggests that the learning of one language makes it more likely you're going to be able to learn another language. So kids who have minimal high school language who want to go off to college and learn language are going to find it difficult. And it deals with, among other things, training of ambassadors, international trade. I think there is something in your genetic strength structure of some people, the brain structure, that's going to make this easy. Yeah. And I hope that universities continue to make the variety of offerings really, really mm -hmm. plentiful. Oh, yeah. Because the world is filled with lots of people who speak different languages. I mean, I hope so, too. And I mean, you know, I think it's not just Latin and Greek, because I, I remember, I, I mean, I've always been one, language doesn't per se come easy to me, but I do have an interest in learning not the sort of ones that people think of. I want all the really weird ones that no one really wants to teach. If Mizzou one day offered Old Norse or Welsh or something, or Irish, I would have been the first one to sign up and say, I want to take that. Yeah, that's, and, and keep in mind that one of the things you're dealing with is the definition of a university. Universities are the place where stuff is going to be taught mm -hmm. and researched the freedom of inquiry on stuff that is out there. The problem you deal with is the business of running a university. The money. That's where the rubber hits. Yeah, right, right. And and it has been interesting myself coming from, again, big public land-grant university, yeah, and then right. now having seen friends and other colleagues and, and, and whatnot coming from these private institutions and me being surprised that Either they didn't get something or something was defunded. And I, I used to think it was all a little closer than it is in terms of running universities. But apparently I was taught, no, that's it's very different. Uh, there's a lot of politics involved both on university end and actual politics in terms of how universities get money. Yeah. You know, do you think it's going to become easier or harder in the future for big public universities to get like unique course offerings, especially if... It's going to be more difficult. And is it because you can't prove that it's popular or? Popular is that they're, they're never going to use that kind of adjective. They're going to use something like cost effective to teach like old Norse to three people. 
when you've got a hundred people trying to get into a finance class, they can't take it because they don't have the money. That's what you're dealing with. Ah. And I think also in America, I don't know if it's true in Britain, but this whole banning the book phenomenon, getting rid of stuff from libraries, eventually it's going to boil down to also the cost of making stuff available. Mm. So I think that I think one of the issues that's going to come up in your personal and professional lifetime is the cost of being interested in things. Cost to you personally, cost to society. And that's, I would say that's something we all have to be very concerned about. Mm. Now that means it's time to read Ozymandias, right? <laughs> yes, if we want to talk about the sort of, yeah. The antique lands <laughs> and the stuff that's out there that's worth exploring. Exactly. Right? How do you happen to get into this poem? We're we're getting so meta about you know what what stays, what goes, what's permanent, what's not. So you're right; it is a perfect time. So yes, if you could just read us a poem, and then we can we can get into analyzing. Sure. It. How did you become interested in this poem, Lexi? I first read it in high school in one of my classes, and yeah, I was so taken with it that it stuck with me and just was my favorite poem of all time. I'm glad to hear that. That's a good one to have as your favorite. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> I'm gonna... I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that a sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Thank you for that beautiful reading. It is... Again, as always, beautiful. (laughs) And and this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So basically, the first question is, you know, what is it about this poem that you think captures people's attention? Like, why do people love it so much? You know, is it the way it's written? Is it just, I'm, I'm endlessly curious by what people think of it. 
Um, you know, it's the whole, in its own way, it's, it's kind of the Odyssey myth. This guy is a traveler and he's from an ancient land and he's going to a place that's also an ancient land. And by having two ancients meet, you're also in your own way talking about two moderns meeting. So I like the way how about how the past is also about the present. You're always finding treasures. And the fact that the treasures are in a desert. So you're there with the treasures by yourself. And I think the concept of learning by oneself alone is really an exciting one. I think that's part of the reason I like this poem so well myself. A lot of stuff that you can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 just so evocative. You know, the, the minute anyone starts reciting it or you read it, you just get this image instantly of your head of this sort of lost civilization, lost world. Well, then one other thing, the fact that at the end, Shelley writes wreck with a capital W. It sounds like something which is destroyed and useless. And in fact, it's not. I mean, it's just brilliantly crafted. So the contradiction of yeah. a wreck that isn't. No, I mean, it's just brilliantly crafted, I think, any way you look at it, the writing and the... Yeah, ancient stuff that's not ancient, wrecks mm-hmm. that aren't. I like that a lot. And so I'm curious, um, because not only is it just beautifully evocative, but to me, at least, right. one of the reasons it's my favorite poems in the world is because I see it as a memento mori, as just sort of, you know, monumentality. What what does that actually mean? Does it stay? Does it not? Will it survive? Yeah. No, there's memento mori, too. Of course, it's a memento mori poem also. Mm-hmm. You bet. You and bet. S- Nothing is going to last. Yeah. And so yeah. since it is kind of like political and, and a reminder that we will die, I love asking guests, you know, if you consider our modern world right now, do we have a modern equivalent of an Ozymandias, something that we think is going to last forever? Good question. Yeah, good question. Notice that this is, a, yes, it is a Memento Mori poem, but it's also, even in the Memento Mori, stuff is living. So that's part of the oxymoron nation, nature of the poem as well. It's a good one to have as a favorite. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. You could just, I mean, I think someone could teach a whole class on the poem itself and the meaning behind it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I. Well, this has been fun, Lexi. Thanks for giving me a chance to just expound on some stuff. I hope you found this kind of interesting and useful for your project. I did, and it's going to be great. And actually, there's three short questions I have left to ask you. Yeah, One sure. is, when you were a student, either in undergrad or grad school, did you attend office hours? I don't recall attending office hours. I do recall regular visits with teachers formally and informally. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and nowadays, by the way, Lexi, I don't have office hours. I have walking hours. Oh. Ooh. And, and how does that differ? I, th- I do it for a number of reasons. If, if I'm in freshman, I like to show them parts of the campus. So we talk and walk. And then for graduate, I just did one a day before yesterday, graduating senior, we walked to a Play a building that the student has never been in. So I think there's always a responsibility of a, a sense of discovery. Being a teacher is helping people discover. And I do that geographically. Mm. Maybe, maybe for some obligatory form that some person had to sign for me, I went to an office hour, but that would be the exception, not the rule. That does not mean for a moment that I didn't go out of my way to meet with teachers and stuff like that. Not I love the idea of walking hours. And from from these, in your experience, do you have a favorite memory or conversation from one of these? I can't, I, I, there, there's so many of the students. I mean, I, I do I do five, six, seven a week, Lexi. I just know there's no way I can come with paid. I can't. There's, there is no Okay. Way. No worries. That's... <laughs> tomorrow, morning, Lord, tomorrow morning, I've got something at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11.45 with three different students. Okay. So it's, it's nonstop. Okay. So it's a lot, and you'll impart wisdom on those. And and so the last question I want to ask you then is, you know, now being an educator and from all your years of experience, you, you know, for the students who are too scared or just don't want to go talk to their professors, what would you say, like, what short argument would you give for why students should come and go to office hours or talk to professors? I wish I could answer that. I try to tell students that everything about being in college is preparation for stuff. You're always going to be meeting strangers. You need to learn how to start a conversation. You don't, you know, you need to learn how to feel 
that it's okay to be awkward. Teachers who've been around for a while know what you feel. We'll help you break the ice. But we can't do it unless you're willing to become a risk taker. Uh, one of the concerns I have is that a lot of students are not risk takers. They're the ones who, for example, in high school, knew how to get the automatic A or A+. I mean, anybody can get a four point. That's not that difficult. You just take courses you know you're going to do well in. And it's similar with personal type things. Being a risk taker, learning how to talk to people, learning how to listen to people. Listening to people is a real key skill. I, I think I'm getting better at it every year, but I think it's one set of skills that everyone needs to work on constantly. So listening to and speaking with, you know, just getting out there and being part of the world. Well, I will say I really was sad that I was not able to take one of your classes when I myself was at Mizzou. I mean, you would come in the office regularly, which is great. You know, that's part mm -hmm. of our responsibility. I just think it would have been so fun and engaging, but my schedule didn't uh, match up. Uh, you saw a lot of the memes. You saw, you want to, should I, should, well, hold on a second. Let's end with oh, this Oh, excellent. One, okay. I like this one. Visigoths and the Invisigoths. <laughs> These are fantastic. And my, here's my last one. What can I get you, huh? <laughs> oh, man. These are fantastic. <laughs> So, Lexi, here is your assignment yes. for our conversation. Anytime you see a cartoon or meme or something, you send oh, it to me. Oh, I like will. That. I will. I have to add to your stash now. <laughs> Precisely. Oh, my gosh. All right. So this has been a lot of fun, Lexi. Hope this has been helpful to you. Congratulations on all you're doing. Yeah, I can't. It's been amazing. Thank you. I mean, I honestly, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me, taking time out of your very, very busy schedule. But I mean, it's been it's been such a pleasure to ca catch up with you since I graduated. And you bet. Um, you bet. You know, thank you for contributing to the project. <laughs> you bet. Look forward to hearing from you, Lexi. Take care. Thank you. Good to see you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.